you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. There were three girls from 9 to 12 years of age. These were most of them at Goodwife Corey's examination, and did vehemently accuse her in the assembly of afflicting them, by biting, pinching, strangling, etc. It was observed several times that if she did but bite her underlip in the time of examination, the persons afflicted were bitten on their arms and wrists, and produced the marks before the magistrates, ministers, and others. An account of the trial of Martha Corey of Salem, by Rev. Diodot Lawson, quoted in Montague Summers' The Geography of Witchcraft. This is Episode 44, Bitten by Phantoms. Arthur Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. Eleanor Zagoon was born in May 1913 in the region of Talpa in south-central Romania, about 42 miles from Bucharest. At age 11 in 1924, she found some money lying on the ground, and she took it and spent it on candy. Her grandmother told her that the money was put there by Dracu, the devil, to tempt her, and now that she had taken it, the devil would follow her. The next day, it is said, Poltergeist activity began at the house as stones were thrown at the house. Windows and furniture were broken by the rocks, and an Orthodox priest called by her grandmother marked a stone with a sign of a cross and tossed it back outside, at which point it promptly was thrown back into the house. Eleonore's father had sent her to a monastery at Gorove in northern Romania to be exorcised by the monks, but the exorcism failed, and Eleonore ended up being sent to an asylum. She was removed from the asylum by Fritz Grunewald, an engineer from Berlin, who was an investigator of paranormal phenomena. She was moved to another monastery and examined by Grunewald, who there claimed to have seen a salt shaker fly across the room and strike a Leonore. Grunewald died in 1925, and the girl was adopted by Countess Zoe Wasilko Serecki, a Czech noblewoman who took her to Vienna to be examined by doctors. Investigations were then carried out by Professor Hans Thuring of Vienna University. Thuring also contacted ghost hunter Harry Price to come to the city and investigate. On March 26, 1926, Professor Hans Hahn of Vienna University said that he saw bite marks appear on Eleanor's arms and hands. In May of that year, Ghost hunter Harry Price, who had been summoned to Vienna by Professor Hans Thuring of the same university, which actually I just said, 
said he was in the, he was present in the room with a countess and Eleanor when he witnessed a, a letter opener fly across the room and stick in the wall. He also on this occasion saw the marks of phantom attack appear on the girl, stating that on these occasions, great wheels, bites, bruises, and scratches appear on her skin without apparent cause. He said that the countess also recited a list of other phenomena which had occurred in her presence. Needles had stuck to Eleanor's face and hands. Her neck and face were stained by the marks of pencils that did not move from their places. At times, the girl said she was touched by a cold, clammy hand. At other times, a voice was heard muttering softly. Objects flew across the room in her presence. A ball of yarn vanished from inside a box and after a few minutes reappeared, only to disappear again. On one occasion, her necklace snapped and all the beads tumbled to the floor. As Eleanor was bending to pick the beads up, a shower of additional beads fell from the opposite corner of the room. For about a month later that year, Price brought the two to London to examine Eleanor in greater detail at the National Laboratory for Psychic Research, which was part of the College of Psychic Studies, the president of which was Arthur Conan Doyle. She was said to have muttered ominously upon arrival, the devil has come with me to London. The devil is very pleased to come to London, for he hopes to find plenty to do here. The press, however, answered this statement with a cynical response. Ardent reformers and religious propagandists have before now expressed the idea that the devil is a regular resident in London. Soon after she arrived there, the phenomena were noted by an observer. She was taking tea in the laboratory when... In the act of raising the teacup to her lips, she gave a cry of pain and rolled up her sleeve. On her forearm were what seemed to be marks of teeth deeply indented into the flesh, as if she or someone else had bitten fiercely into the arm. The marks turned from red to white and finally took the form of white raised wheels. They gradually faded out, but were still noticeable about an hour later. Harry Price noted, Coins that I had placed on the lintel of the door without Eleanor's knowledge would suddenly fly over a net that I had erected in the middle of the room toward her. However, I will give the first experience with her in London. On the morning after she arrived, she and Countess Wasilko Sarecki, who brought Eleanor to the attention of the authorities, heard a tinkling noise on the dressing table in the room where they both slept. Eleanor lived in daily dread of the strange manifestations which she declared resulted because she was possessed of devils and would not sleep alone. Upon investigating the sound, the Countess and Eleanor discovered that Eleanor's silver ring, a treasure of a child's, was missing. At 2.30 that afternoon, Eleanor was playing with, with a dog at the laboratory, number 16 Queensbury Place, when we both heard something fall near the door. She murmured, Dracu, the Romanian term for devil, and ceasing to play, followed me. Just inside the room was the ring. Eleanor also sometimes performed automatic writing. On one occasion, she went into a trance and filled a number of pages with Romanian script, which was taken and read by the countess. She then turned and asked an observer if she had lost any keys. When the observer replied in the affirmative, the countess read out directions to where the lost keys could be found. Other experiments were performed by Dr. R.J. Tilliard. He hid coins in various spots around the room where the quote-unquote poltergeist girl sat. 
Some lights on a nearby record player lit up, and he looked toward the center of the room. On the floor was found the two-oar Danish coin, which had been displaced from the top of the cabinet, eight feet or more away, and had landed flat on the floor without any rattle or rolling. Even the most sympathetic accounts, like Peter Malox's 1999 article, conceded that Eleanor, similarly to the Hodgson girls in the Enfield Poltergeist case, would, sometimes, resort to trickery. And not all the English press either was quite so accepting of issues with the accounts of the supposedly supernatural happenings. For example, a Dr. Fielding Old said, This girl is hysterical. She is certainly hypersensitive. These marks are pathological. We see lots of similar cases in hospitals. The marks that appeared, particularly those on her face, were always semicircular. She produced them herself. There was no evidence of fraud, however. Dr. Fielding Old was the successor of Arthur Conan Doyle as president of the college upon the former's death in 1930. Even Harry Price conceded to some degree to the more skeptical evaluations of Eleanor. Eleanor is not possessed by a devil. That much is certain. I am certain that that it is physical and not psychical, in the sense of spiritualistic, phenomena that we saw in Eleanor. A great deal has been published, as I state in my official report upon Eleanor Zagoon, about stigmata. In this, I mention the the experiments of Dr. Pierre Genet, who, by imaginary mustard plasters, produced red patches upon a subject. Countless physical marks, produced by sheer suggestion, are recorded by medical men. Early in 1927, the phenomena associated with Eleanor, whatever they may have been, abruptly stopped as she turned 14 and entered puberty. Later that year, however, the Countess was suing two men for libel. Hans Rosenbusch had published an article in the Tageblatt, a Berlin newspaper. Dr. Rosenbusch, Munich, and Otto Stahl, a conjurer, claimed to have exposed a deception practiced by the Countess in connection with Leonor Zagoon, the 13-year-old Romanian supposed mystery girl. Teeth marks appeared mysteriously on the body of the girl. Dr. Rosenbusch and Stale declared that the countess, under the pretense of smoothing Zagoon's hair, scratched her cheek and neck, but that the skin of the girl reacted abnormally and did not show marks until about two or three minutes later. Thus, while Zagoon was exhibiting one mark, the countess was adroitly producing another. Rosenbusch also claimed that some of the scratches were made by Eleanor herself, and that they always appeared after either the Countess or Eleanor had touched the particular spot. The accompanying phenomena, like the swelling and sudden disappearance, were manifestations of a certain condition of the skin quite familiar to medical science. Harry Price refers to Hans Rosenbusch as an arch-skeptic who has written largely on the negative side of psychical research. As to Eleanor, she herself stayed in London for a time, and then later returned to Romania, where she became a hairdresser and married. Another account of supernatural bites comes from John Latimer's The Annals of Bristol in the 18th Century, written in 1893. In December 1761, much excitement was caused in the city by reports of alleged supernatural disturbances in the household of Richard Giles, 
Landlord of the Lamb Inn by Lawford's Gate, who had just started certain flying wagons to London. Two of Giles's numerous family, Molly and Dobby, aged 13 and 8, were stated to be nightly tormented by some invisible power which bit them on the neck and arms and pricked them with pins. Various articles of furniture being at the same time thrown about their bedroom by incomprehensible forces. Amongst the persons desirous of probing the mystery was Mr. Henry Durbin, a prosperous druggist in Redcliffe Street, uncle of Sir John Durbin, whose narrative of the marvels must be briefly summarized. When the children were together in bed, Mr. Durbin was shown marks of bites and scratchings that had just been made under the bedclothes, and was at a loss to account for them naturally, although he notes that the girls were never tormented when asleep. He also saw a wine glass rise perpendicularly a foot into the air and fling itself with a loud report against a nurse five feet distant. Then Molly's cap flew four feet off her head, and something beat the tattoo on the bed ticking with the skill of a drummer. During the biting and pricking, Mr. Durbin and others thumped the bed vigorously when something squeaked like a rat, but the practices continued. After other experiences, the evil spirit, for Mr. Durbin was now sure it was a spirit, condescended to reply to questions by giving as many knocks as the interrogator required for an affirmative reply. By this means, it was discovered, as had been suspected, that the spirit was instigated by an old witch living at Mangotsfield, who had been paid ten guineas by a rival carrier to bewitch Mr. Giles's family and wagons. This confession was confirmed by the fact that one of Mr. Giles's flying wagons had suddenly stuck fast in the road at Hanlon, where eighteen horses had been required to move it, while another wagon had a trembling fit in Giles's own yard. By February, the subject had become the talk of the city, and Mr. Durbin had been joined in his numberless visits to the inn by several clergymen, amongst them being the Reverend J. Camplin, precentor of the, of the cathedral and the vicar of St. Nicholas, the Reverend S. Sire, head, headmaster of the grammar school, the Reverend R. Symes of St. Werberg's, the Reverend J. Price of Temple, the Reverend Blank Brown, and the Reverend Blank Shepherd. It was now thought desirable to interrogate the evil spirit in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, and Mr. Durbin asserts that it answered correctly by Knox to all the questions put in those tongues. What was still more marvelous, Mr. Camplin asked several questions mentally and received truthful taps in reply. Mr. Symes, equally convinced that the agency was diabolical, asked in the pulpit for the prayers of his parishioners on behalf of the tormented children. Another believer addressed a, a letter to Felix Farley's journal, declaring that scoffers of witchcrafts cast a slur upon the Bible. Soon after, the children began to be thrown violently out of bed, and Major Drax, a relative of the Countess of, Ber Countess of Berkeley, and a powerful man, assured Mr. Durbin that his strength, together with that of his footmen and coachmen, was insufficient to, present, to prevent the girls from being thrown on the floor. Indeed, Four stout men could scarce hold one child, who was born toward the ceiling. Pins next began to fly across the room. The Major marked several pins and laid them in a distant corner, but they were forthwith thrown back into his hand. The gallant officer then carried them up to London to court, and shooed them to several noblemen and bishops, with results unrecorded. Meanwhile, the wagons were as much persecuted as the children, one vehicle being sixteen hours in making its way from the Lamb Inn to Bath, 
while another had its iron chain twisted into knots. But Giles seems to have had a shrewd suspicion that the evil agency was simply the trickery of his servants. The children were removed to the houses of various friends, but the phenomena continued so long as they remained together, while there was a notable diminution of the marvels when they suddenly separated. On the 12th of May, Mr. Giles suddenly became ill. He had ridden to Bath in a gig, but on returning home, on reaching the spot where his wagons were usually affected, the harness broke and he saw an old woman standing by the wheel, to whom he had not the courage to speak. He died on the 16th, and Mr. Durbin clearly believed, and in fact the demon told him, the carrier was a victim to witchcraft. The customary disturbances at the lamb then ceased for about two months. The eldest girl had been sent to Swansea. But in July, Dobby began to be again tormented, and at the following fair, many old frequenters of the inn declined to lodge in the witch-stricken hostel. Soon after, the children being together again, the old phenomenon revived, and Mr. Durbin, on questioning the spirit, learnt that the witch had received another fee of ten guineas to continue the, per the persecution. The necessity of taking energetic measures now became apparent. Mrs. Giles resolved on calling in the assistance of a white witch, commonly known as the Cunning Woman of Bedminster. A visit being paid to this redoubtable female, the wit at once stated to her disguised clients that she knew all about the case, named the spirit that had worked the mischief, and propounded a remedy for a summary overthrow, which modern delicacy will not permit to be described. Her prescription was immediately followed with triumphant success. The demon was routed, and never ventured to return. The prosaic John Evans concludes his notice of the affair by stating that the whole imposture was planned by Mrs. Nelms and her daughter, Mrs. Giles, the grandmother and mother of Molly and Dobby, for purpose of depreciating the value of the house, of which Mrs. Nelms became the purchaser. For nine or ten days, from May 9th until May 18th or 19th, 1953, as reported in mainly non-American press sources, an 18-year-old girl named Clarita Villanueva was supposedly bitten by spirits, similarly to Eleanor Zagoon and the Giles children. Villanueva was jailed for vagrancy in Manila, Philippines, when she had begun to exhibit some bizarre symptoms. Arsenio Laxon, the mayor of that city, had heard that bite marks were appearing on the body of Villanueva on several occasions and that she had claimed it was two spirits assaulting her. One, a very big dark man with curly hair all over the body, and the other, a boy with an angelic face and a big mustache. He had her brought to his office on May 18th so that the phenomena could be observed by both himself and Dr. Mariana Lara, the medical examiner. Within 15 minutes, the girl was attacked again, bite marks appearing on her neck and another on her finger. Lexan described the attack. Clarita's hand was bitten while I was holding it. The finger was bitten under my palm. What it is is beyond me. This is something that goes way back to the dark, dim past. After she was bitten, as he described, she writhed and then laughed as if she had been tickled. The spirits were taking turns biting her, she claimed. Then Villanueva was asked to draw her attackers, but she tore the paper with her teeth and bit the pencil. Laxon said that the pencil flew from her hands. The mayor felt that the, that the attacks were demonic in nature, 
and it was said that he planned to, to ask Archbishop Sanos of Manila to perform an exorcism. Dr. Lara seemed to concur about, about there being evil forces, saying that, I always thought of this world as a visible thing, but here is something unknown, a force unseen yet felt. A further examination of Villanueva took place. Where exactly this took place isn't clear. It was somewhere that allowed for many people to be present. It was possibly at the National Center for Mental Health, also called the National Psychic Hospital, or the National Hospital for the Insane in various news accounts, since the doctors who were present were associated with that institution. Journalist Rodolfo Nazarena was one of those present. As he described the proceedings, I saw her tense, collapse, stiffen, and go into trances. The fits come in the presence of a crowd of about a hundred medical specialists, nurses, and pressmen. Someone pinned a religious image to her dress. She wrenched her head around and tore the image from her clothing with her teeth. Dr. Jaime Zaguir pricked the girl with pins while she was in one of these fits, but this elicited no response. Zaguir also noted a bite-like mark on the, of, on the back of Milanueva's neck. The other doctor, Severia Goduco, spoke with Villanueva and was told that, I am being punished by a very big, dark, hairy man who tells me what to do. I see him often, morning, noon, and night. Some accounts claim that one of the two psychiatrists said of the attacks, I think they are the work of some unearthly being. Others claim, probably more reliably in my opinion, that both doctors dismissed the idea that supernatural forces were working on her. Dr. Zaguir said, she has been a vagrant. She wants to escape, and the attacks and hallucinations she is suffering are just part of her escape. This is a case of psychoneurosis, a hysterical reaction. I can cure the girl if given a chance. The doctors claimed that what appeared to be bites on the girl were merely bruised areas on her skin inflicted during her fits. In 1954, a book called The, the True Story of Clarita Villanueva was published by American missionary and evangelist Lester Sumrall. This book was eventually reprinted as Bitten by Devils, and is one of the sources used in this episode. However, the accuracy of Sumrall's report isn't known for certain. It is known that Sumrall did, indeed, perform an exorcism as is reported here, but it can't be determined how that turned out. That said, his account actually provides some detail on Clarita herself, who he claims was one of four children she was from Bacalod City and was for the most part uneducated. She left home for Manila, eloped with a man that she later found to be married, and was arrested by the police one night on her way home from a movie. Other accounts quoted in the same book, however, claim that she was charged with prostitution as well as vagrancy. It is also claimed that on the night of May 9th, her leg had become wedged in her bed, and it was only with some difficulty that she managed to remove it. Then stones began to be thrown into her cell, and then she later saw the spirit for the first time, crouched on a beam near the ceiling. Interestingly, Sumrall's account also is devoid of almost all references to Arsenio Laxon, and in fact, the instance where Clarita's hand was bitten underneath his own was attributed to Dr. Laura. An accounting by Dr. Laura quoted in Sumrall's book says that Cesar Lucero, chief of the Manila police, felt that the bites on the girl were likely the effects of her own biting. He also claimed that the girl was choked by the spirits on at least one occasion, a few reddish welts in the front of the neck occurring with this phenomena. 
The always unreliable Frank Edwards discussed the case in Stranger Than Science, here limiting the entire story to the first 15-minute visit to Mayor Laxon's office and saying it took place in 1951 rather than 1953. There was also only one spirit attacking her now, with large insectoid eyes. Other versions of the tale make the, the attackers vampires, ghosts, or, of course, those aliens that make their way into nearly every corner of the paranormal, reptilians. Overall, the case of Clarita Villanueva seems to have been similar to what we would call demonic possession. I say what we would call possession, since so far as it's recorded, Villanueva herself never called the spirits demons. Interestingly, the rocks thrown into the cell also displays the overlap I've noted before between poltergeist phenomena and demonic possession. Take note of how many cases of possession begin with manifestations of a poltergeist. Hysteria is mentioned in connection with these various cases, and its effect on the body is indeed interesting. Note that this is mental hysteria, not the Victorian idea of woman troubles. In the research done into what was formerly called hysteria, but which now may be considered any one of a number of mental illnesses, in many instances, probably dissociative identity disorder, formerly known as multiple personalities, I found some interesting bits. It was mentioned that most hysterics are very suggestible. I would presume this to apply to Eleanor Zagoon, at least as from descriptions and accounts, she seems to have possibly suffered from some degree of mental, mental handicap. W. Russell Ritchie describes this. Another feature of individuals subject to hysterical attacks is the extraordinary degree of suggestibility which they, sell, which they show. For example, in a case of hysterical anesthesia, it is quite easy to suggest to the patient that some part of the skin will be very sensitive say at the base of the nails. In this way, a part that was previously anesthetic may become exquisitely tender. This suggestibility gives a clue to the method by which the patient produces hysterical phenomena. These phenomena are probably produced by the power of suggestion exerted by one personality on a second personality. The second personality, for example, decides that it is desirable that one limb should be paralyzed, and succeeds in suggesting this so effectively to the main personality that paralysis actually develops. The second personality, in fact, hypnotizes the first. It is not surprising, therefore, that the phenomena seen in hysteria resemble very closely those seen under hypnosis. In hypnosis, the personality of another person suggests the phenomena which should occur, while in hysteria, it is a second personality in the same individual, which provides a suggestive force. Ritchie also gives the following quote, which takes on another meaning, in light of the fact that the supposedly possessed actually do benefit from exorcism. Many forms of treatment are useful, according to the degree of suggestive force they convey. Essentially, if one enters this sort of fit and believes oneself to be possessed by the devil, then your mind will make the exorcism work. Also interesting is research I've done on a Jewish specific disorder called Dybbuk syndrome. Although this is specific to Jewish culture and the manifestations of the quote-unquote demonic activity in turn are specific to what it's believed a demon would act like in that culture, I don't see any reason that other variants, say, 
for example, for a Catholic-specific version, could develop. Interesting in this regard is the statement of Dr. Lara about the red welts on Clarita's throat and the swelling of peripheral organs, for example, the neck or breasts, mentioned as part of the diagnosis of possession. Also interesting in regards to the many attempts made by Clarita to destroy a statue of Mary and the baby Jesus is the fact that in many cases of Dybbuk syndrome, they make violent attempts to desecrate the most sacred symbols. Also mentioned by some in connection with both the Zagoon and Villanueva cases is the phenomena of stigmata. In this phenomenon, wounds appear on the afflicted individual which seem to mirror those suffered by Jesus during the crucifixion. Some interesting research on stigmata has been done, and I would encourage the listener to dig into some of the proposed causes, as they're highly interesting, and I can do little more than sum them up here. A good summary is from the book Outbreak, which I've used for the show before. In their section on stigmata, authors Robert Bartholomew and Hilary Evans mention that the wounds often correspond exactly with those on an image of Jesus with which the sufferer is familiar. In short, it seems to be caused by the mind, and to correspond with Harry Price's observations of a Leonor Zagoon, physical and not psychical, in the sense of spiritualistic. The wounds are in the mind, not from a spirit or devil. A feature which supports the autosuggestion hypothesis is that the, nat- is that the nature of the wounds varies greatly from one stigmatic to another. If the stigmata were indeed a divine affliction, we would expect them to be consistent, whereas in practice, we find wide differences as to where they are located on the body and in the form they take. Some are hardly more than superficial scratches, though bleeding nonetheless, while others are deep incisions that appear to perforate the hand or foot from front to back. In yet others, the blood seems to well up through the skin without any wound as such. In some stigmatics, the stigmata disappear between manifestations, while in others, there may be a permanent mark. These differences point to a process whereby the subconscious creates the stigmata in accordance with preconceived ideas. Also mentioned is the fact that in some instances, the stigmatic can simply will the wounds away. This again seems seems to put a damper on the wounds being inflicted by an outside source and suggests a cause rooted in psychology. Although typical stigmata is associated with Christianity, mainly though not exclusively Catholicism, if some sort of belief-motivated phenomena straddling the border between mental and physical is the root cause, there's no reason other forms of it couldn't exist. Most interestingly, no stigmatics, at least not ones displaying the wounds of Christ, are known from from Eastern Orthodox Christianity. And in fact, that branch of the church sees such things as equally likely to be from the devil as from God. Could it, could it simply be that in Leonor Zagoon, the Giles children, and Clarita Villanueva were simply stigmatics, but that their stigmata took a different form than, than was normal? In all cases, other phenomena external to the afflicted person were noted, so stigmata is not all that's going on, but... And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, 
post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. And so, until next episode, this is Andrew, signing off. <sighs> signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.